Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour and another Progress City Town Hall. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? Splendid. I'm excited to be back for uh, another part of this wonderful conversation we started a couple of weeks ago. I know we had a lot of comments after the last episode about how delightful Tim is. We're speaking, of course, to former Imagineer and uh, a kind of legendary designer, Tim Delaney. Uh, People talking about how enthusiastic he is and how knowledgeable he is. And all I could think of was like, well, we've got a lot more coming. There is more on the way of that. That's right. And if you haven't listened to that first episode, you should go back and check it out. But um, Tim is a an enthusiast, like you said, he knows his Disney history. Just uh, is a great guy to talk to about all these things. A, a real fun hang. So, without further ado, let's uh, let's get back to him as we welcome Tim Delaney back to the podcast. First, I'd just like to kind of go through a lot of these Epcot projects one by one and just kind of get your get your take on these things uh, that you worked on. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you, you, you did so, so much. Uh, did you start on World of Motion? Was that your entry? No, I mean, I don't know. I was just, what I was just doing is I was doing all those uh, kind of overall, you know, uh, placemaking sketches when somebody mm. was what does it look like here? What does it look like there? And actually there wasn't that many people. There was just like two direction from a couple of different individuals. But, um, you know, it was just, it was a very strange time there. I mean, it, it was strange in, compar- in comparing it to later years when we had a constant staff of so many of a lot of people who did a lot of different things. At that time, you know, the creative group was really small. There were like 450 people in the company. I mean, when you think about it, by the time we get done with Epcot, it was like 3,000 people working there and they had massive layoffs which is always kind of that sad part of, you know, big projects when they ramp up and then they have to cut back. But, uh, you know, but, but, uh, you know, um, so, you know, it it was small and nobody really knew what they were doing. (laughs) That's for sure. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, technically they knew what to do with, but I mean, again, I think the scope of the work was just so overwhelming, you know, uh, I mentioned it, I might've mentioned this last time, you know, just like, you think like, trying to get that ride system through Spaceship Earth and trying to get that energy pavilion working. And, you know, they were just dedicated teams that did it, you know. And, um, you know, it was such a different thing because if you look at the history of the company, we had Disneyland, which was kind of a quaint little park compared to the Magic Kingdom, Walt Disney World. But, um, you know, it was just somehow we just got it done, you know. And, um, you know, people were really dedicated and. You know, it's easy to get behind um, a project when you're a dedicated team member and uh, in the company. Um, it's just because that's what your life and job is. You know, that's that's the extraordinary thing. You know, they, for creative people to be able to get up and go to a job and you have a job every day and you don't have to worry about where your next job's coming or where your next paycheck is coming and you just dedicate yourself. It's really an extraordinary opportunity. And I always felt very, very fortunate to be able to be involved in that kind of a, that kind of a process, that kind of a situation. You know, it was, um, 
you know, you kind of forget about it after a number of years. But I mean, I, I actually never really did. I, I just, I mean, I always marveled at all the teams that I was able to get and the people I had to work with. And when you leave the company, you really miss all that. You miss the yeah. people, you miss extraordinary people and, um, and you know, the dedication that they had. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very, I don't know. I think there must be some metaphor of like, the Renaissance or something like that. You know, I think that's what Ray Bradbury called Imagineers, you know, the Renaissance people. You know? Was so much of what you did, because, I mean, you did these very inspirational overview pieces and these, you know, these great pieces of like the Space Pavilion and then yeah. later the Seas Pavilion wow. and these things. Was all that done in the interest of, signing sponsor like participant agreements because that was such a fundamental like thing that had to be done for this park right well the sponsorship had to do had had everything you know to make it happen there was no question yeah. from a financial point of view but i think bringing these people in you know is is as i uh you may or may not know but every pavilion when it got started had its own advisory board and the reason that they did that it's a little bit like when is is with and when we talked about this last time, you know, when Walt and Ward Kimball did um, uh, Man in Space, you know, they brought in experts like Willie Lay and Werner Braun right? So, and I think that 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 was the model. They didn't want to they they didn't want to be caught in the press by saying, "Oh, this is going to be like a Disney future," you know, this is or this isn't going to be a Disney point of view. Um, there was enough influence by the corporate sponsors that they really had to make sure that they were heading down a path of of being equal on all sides in terms of its, uh, in terms of the subject matter. So, um, you know, and also I think one feeds the other. So you have a creative organization that can make things come together. You have an advisory board with experts who are experts in the field who would reach out to. And then <clears throat> when you want to approach the, uh, the, the, uh, the corporate sponsors, then what you ended up doing is, you know, you kind of link them all together. So it was kind of a cohesive team. And I thought it was a very good structure. You know, um, as I said, I, I, I don't know all. I mean, um, say that um, I'm trying to remember. And Carl Hodges was the kind of lead guy for the uh, uh, land pavilion. Mm -hmm. But when we did the Living Seas Pavilion, like I said, I, you know, we had Dr. Ballard and um, Sylvia Earle. And, you know, we had the who's who. Uh, 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 Gil Grosvenor from uh, National Geographic. And, you know, we, we had all of these people who we could call on. And yet they, they lend credibility to the subject matter. And, that, and actually, the more that we did in terms of development, we would actually show to the advisory board exactly what we were working on so that, you know, they would kind of give us, you know, guidelines in terms of, you know, are we on the right track? Or are we, you know, should, are you putting more emphasis in one thing versus another? Or here's a new subject that you should be aware of. You know, again, when you do things from the future, you know, and you you really, really count on updating them. And sometimes Epcot was able to up, update projects and sometimes they weren't. But in, in many cases, we wanted to actually have, if, if there was an application of science that was really involved, you know, we wanted to get the people who were involved. Uh, um, uh, for the land pavilion, you know, Carl Hodges, you know, was doing a lot of development of agriculture in parts of the world that just wouldn't grow anything. So, I mean, he, you know, and so we did demonstrations of that. So, I mean, that, that you know, I think it was a smart move. I think it was, it's when, it's when Epcot really had that spirit of, you know, it was not, you know, it ended up not being Walt's, you know, community of living. 
uh, but it ended up being a project dedicated to you know future technologies and opportunities in the future that that we should all take advantage of or, or we should learn about just very similar like world's fairs do right right and and i think that's to their credit that they put together these groups of you know really notable people i mean you talk about the people involved with the seas and uh yeah it, it shows that they were really making making an effort for sure. Yeah. I think that's oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was, you know, again, it was new territory. I mean, like I said, you know, we had Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. So that was kind of like Walt's fantasy. Um, fantasies come to life in the park and you get to experience them. So Epcot was going to be something completely new. And so, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, I was too young at that time to understand the risk being taken. But, um, but now as I think back, you know, I think back and more of the projects we did uh, that we knew where we were going, you know, whether it was Disneyland Paris or Tokyo or Hong Kong or, you know, I mean, or doing movie studio tours, which was part of the Disney company. That was all kind of familiar territory. And this was kind of a, a different, um, you know, it's kind of a different program, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, C's, uh, C's Pavilion had a long development uh, and you know went through a couple of iterations of things and i know it had there was some frustration in finding a, a sponsor for that which is probably why it took so long oh yeah uh, yeah, yeah could could tell tell us a little about that process and you know how that project developed over the years oh well we had a you know a, a real strong you know we had a guy uh, who was kind of, I don't, I don't know what his official category is, but anyway, um, Kim Murphy was our kind of spiritual leader. Yeah. <laughs> Kim was, a, a, you know, a very, was involved in SeaWorld and Marineland and kind of knew about the oceans and he was working for Disney and he really wanted to lead this campaign about uh, doing something about the oceans. And as I mentioned uh, last time, I think, you know, when you think about the way Epcot was structured, it was mostly about frontiers of, you know, different, you know, there was the land and then, the, you know, we were, if you look at the original group of Epcot pavilions, there was land, the sea, space, um, the oceans, you know, and then, and then, and then it kind of, you know, that was kind of the overall theme. And then what happened is that reality sets in and we find out, well, gee, General Motors wants to be on board, so we'll have to do transportation or, you know, we had to do Exxon or or want to do energy because of Exxon. So you kind of start with one philosophy and actually work into what reality is going to provide for you. Mm. So, so yeah, the Living Seas Pavilion, or I guess it was called, you know, I think it was, I don't know, it might have been called the Oceans before, but but anyway, something that became the early versions of Living Seas was, was, I think, under Tony Baxter's regime and, and and there were several iterations done of that. Um, most of them were really much more fanciful in terms of the overall look. Like we we're going to, Kim was a big believer in building this, the largest saltwater, self-contained saltwater tank. We wanted to create something that made you feel like you were really in the oceans. You, you wouldn't see a wall. It wasn't an aquarium. It was something completely different. And, um, but, you know, there's some reality there. You know, we, we end up building these you know, the biggest acrylic windows in the world at the time, which were about hmm. eight feet high and 24 feet long. And we had a company down here in Orange County called Reynolds Aluminum, Reynolds Acrylic. I guess it was, yeah, Reynolds Acrylic. Um, yeah, and they were developing all these windows and 
And they'd never built anything as big as it. So we contracted them and we started designing the whole pavilion based on the size of the windows and also what we call that intake module, which was you walk into the ocean and you know under the sea and walk into that tank. And um, so you know it was it was you know there was a lot of story development, there was a lot of technology development, there were a lot of things that you could do and couldn't do, and you know so. Uh, you know, it was, it became very, you know, it, it, it started as, I'm going to come back and answer your questions more specifically. It actually started because it was a logical reason to have an oceans, a pavilion dedicated to the oceans. So there was a bit of advanced development on it. So when they went out to look for sponsors, there's no one actually out there making, you know, money in the oceans, especially, you know, 40 years ago. Um, but uh, we finally contacted, reached out to a company called United Technologies and United Technologies, their first request was, hey, we'd love to sponsor a, a space pavilion. Well, we didn't have a space pavilion at the time, but they wanted to be part of what that Epcot program was going to be all about. So they said, all right, well, you know, we'll we'll meet with your guys. And so we did meet and, and uh, they ended up, you know, signing on as sponsors because they actually wanted to be, you know, part of that initial Epcot opening community. You know, they would put them in the same world as AT&T, Exxon, GM, Kraft, um, Kodak, you know, all the opening day uh, sponsors. So, um, you know, they were kind of difficult, challenging to work with. You know, um, I uh, the one story that I, I don't know if we talked about this already, but, you know, the, the one key thing that I had to develop, you know, we had a whole team working on this whole thing is, we developed uh, hydrolators. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the hydrolators, I mean, it, it, everybody heard the term. Oh, we're going to put, you know, Kim would talk about, well, we're going to do these hydrolators. And be like, okay, well, what are they? Well, we don't know. You know? <laughs> so it was, up to, it was up to me and my team to put something together there. Well, the interesting thing is when United Technologies came on board, United Technologies is a, is a, is a company that is a holding company for many other companies. They had Sikorsky helicopter and and um, um, oh you know a whole bunch of other companies. And, but the one that they actually had that was really kind of relevant to us, but not relevant in a way, was this elevator. So when we pitched this whole thing, we were going to develop this elevator, and the whole idea of the elevator was going to take you from Epcot and take you down into the oceans. You know, one of the story key story points whenever you do a project is that. You know, if you walk into a Disney park, everyone knows you're in a Disney park. But if you say you're going to go into outer space, or if you're going to go into the seas, then you better have some portal that takes you there that separates you from the outside world that takes you into this inside world. So when we first pitched this whole thing, you know, Harry Gray was the CEO, and he was a real character. And um, and he goes, well, listen, what I'll do is I'll get my engineers from from Otis Elevator, and they'll consult with you on how to make this elevator. I'm like. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh-huh. So what we did is we created an elevator that did everything an elevator is not supposed to do. But, you know, you have to create effects. You move the floor, you move the walls, you do, you know, you, you create this whole effect that, that is going to take you someplace. The whole engineering aspect of a real elevator is that you might, you really travel, but they want to create the sensation that you're not moving at all. Right. There's, no, right. there's no stress on the body. Mm-hmm. So... That, you know, that was a fun, you know, that was kind of an interesting, some interesting dialogues. Um, the company is filled with engineers. And when you try to mesh 
creative people with engineers. We had one guy, one of the consultants who was actually working with us all the time. And we pitched an idea about human mammal communication programs. I think that's what it was. It was some off the wall obscure thing that we were gonna, we were gonna put together. And I remember this one guy who was kind of in charge of like heading up, making sure our, our, our technologies and our um, storylines were compute. He was very famous. This one meeting, we were at a meeting with all these people and he just kind of like said, well, we think this is only going to be interesting to your guests. And it was like, it's only interesting to our guests. Wow. How interesting because that's the only thing we're interested in. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't serving United Technologies personnel, you know, All right. their, their, their corporate program. So, you know, it was, it was pretty, it was like, yeah. So, it was, so whenever we'd have something and, none of the UTC guys were around. We'd say, well, that's only interesting to our guests. I'm like, well, that's the nicest thing I've ever heard anyone say. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the entire point of the yeah, exercise. Yeah, but, really you know, for him. That wasn't, that wasn't it. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a substantial, it was a major thing <laughs> building that tank. And, you know, the one funny part that I always thought was interesting, I was reviewing the schedule one time and they had the filling of the tank before we installed the windows. And I was like, um, hold on a second, you know. um, but that isn't going to work because you got to have the windows. Yes, <laughs> that's where project management really, really well, becomes you know, necessary. It just makes for a lively conversation, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So actually, what happened is in the Living Seas Pavilion, the guys who had actually the the company that was building the acrylic windows, they had made these metal forms, and these things were all poured, and and they just try to polish them out. But the, there was um, there was distortion in the, in the on the exterior surface of the uh, acrylic. It was more faceted than a, than a curve, and there was too much distortion in there. So we had to, in order to stay on schedule to get the tank filled and the operational systems up and running, we had to install all the windows. They did fill it with just Florida fresh water, excuse me, um, it, to actually stay on the schedule. Then we drained the tank again. And then they removed about four or five of the windows and had them sent back to California to polish out again. Oh my gosh. They eventually eventually worked out. Okay. It was, it was, it was fine. You know, it worked out. Okay. You know, the interesting thing is today, the windows, the acrylic windows they make for aquariums are five times bigger than the way they. Yeah. That's the crazy part is just how much the technology has advanced. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, and the new aquariums, and like if you go to Monterey or something, you see these windows that are, you know, 100 feet by 40 feet and, or 30 feet. And, you know, it's that's a big, that's, they're very impressive. They're very impressive. And, uh, but, but um, the pavilion actually worked out really, really well because we, it, it was a pavilion where people, you could actually learn things there. And there was a lot of participation by families, you know, kids would, you know, participate or parents would look at, you know, there, there's a lot of interaction with, with families and learning and all that. And I think that that was really, um, I think that was very inspirational. I mean, I, 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 that's not the right word. I found that to be very rewarding, as a matter of fact. I mean, I, I really did. I, uh, 
I think the more that sometimes when you just go into a ride and then you go out and you go to the pre-show, the post-show and you leave, it's like, eh, okay, you know, you remember it on a personal level, but you don't do it as a cohesive level where your family is actually participating. So um, anyway, it was, it was, it was, it was good. It was a lot of hard work, you know, you, you, you know, um, the one thing that people, I, I'm not sure that people really understand how much work goes into these projects. Um, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, you know, you, you spend five years working on it and you're working on it. It's kind of consumes your life. And then once the, pro, once the project moves from, from the, you know, from Imagineering here in Glendale, where, you know, you've done all the creative work and all the drawings and architectural plans, all that stuff are done. And when it moves into the field, it goes into another level of development. And, you know, probably the, the year out before you're open, you're open, you know, you're working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And in the last six months, you're working seven days a week, 18 hours a day to get these things done. My gosh. They, they do not know. They do not build themselves. Theme parks don't build themselves. And the coordinated effort between all of this, the, the disciplines and the value of having a t- your team around you is extraordinary. Um, I've been very, very fortunate to work with great teams. It's like you spend more time with your teams than you do with your family. And, um, and it was, it was um, you know, it's, that was really the first major project I took from the very beginning and only to the day we cut the ribbon. And speaking of cutting the ribbon, so <laughs> um, the extraordinary thing was when the change of administration and the change of management happened at Disney in 84, um, they, you know, when Michael and Frank and Jeffrey and all those guys came in, took over the company and, and basically began structuring, you know, how to awaken, you know, awaken this sleep, sleeping giant. The thing that was extraordinary there is that they went quiet for a long time. And I was dealing a lot with them, you know, at that time. And then when we opened the pavilion in January of 85, yeah. You know, I think it was January. It was the really kind of coming out party of the new management company. You know, so we did a big TV special. Um, Michael, Michael, and I did um, the um, the morning shows. You know, mm. and this was like this was now. You know, they were using the Living Seas Pavilion at that time to really kind of roll out this new management team. And say, this is, you know, this is a new pavilion at Epcot, but, you know, we're just getting started. We're moving forward and we're going and going forward. And um, so it was, you know, it was, it was, um, it was great. It was, it was, you know, it was kind of amazing to see this new administration come in because these guys were world-class entertainment executives and they knew how to, you know, they grew the company creatively. And they and it was, that legacy was continued on with Bob Iger, and uh, and it was great. Um, you know, Michael and Frank were just amazing. I mean, that 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 entity, that two headed monster, was just uh, you know, and, and I say that in a positive way, which is extraordinary. And Frank in particular, because from then we moved on to do Disneyland Paris, and you know, the company was just growing by leaps and bounds, and it was it was a very exciting place to work. You know, I have to say. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, this was one of the big hinge points in the company's um, history. And, you know, how 
I wanted to talk about, obviously it hit big at the studio. Um, it totally changed the way the, the film and TV side operated. Uh, also marked change at Imagineering. Uh, and for, you know, Ep speaking just purely of Epcot development, this was a time when, you know, a lot of those old ideas, it seems looking from the outside, because they were still talking about, you know, a space pavilion, a this and a that, uh, that had been on the original menu. Uh, those kind of disappeared, new ideas came in. Uh, just talk a little about how things changed and then just about Michael and Frank in general. I think when, when Eisner came on board, you know, I mean, well, <laughs> I'll tell you how it goes. And this, this, this kind of um, defines their personality. So on opening day, okay, on the, on the opening day, you know, the day we're cutting the So Michael was outside at the podium and there was, you know, they had a lot of pomp and circumstance and all that. And at the same time, Frank Wells was in the tank uh, <laughs> and cut, cut the ribbon with Mickey 24 feet below the surface of the water. And Mickey was in a scuba equipment, you know, and whoever the Mickey was, was in this gear and I don't know how they did it, but that kind of told you the personalities of both of these men. The interesting thing about them was they were in a way very different, but it was kind of like yin and yang. Um, I've never experienced even since then a partnership that was so well joined together in, 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 in terms of it's almost like, you took two human beings and linked together. And so whenever I refer to those days, it was always Michael and Frank. It was, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, it's like one word, Michael and Frank. And so, you know, where Michael would be kind of crazy, Frank would be like, okay, Frank was a practical guy, but a very, very extraordinary uh, executive. Probably the most, probably the gold standard for me for um, corporate executive, Frank Wells was that man. He was very intelligent, very smart, very down to earth. He would talk to you about anything. He, when he came to the attraction, we opened Disneyland Paris, I remember. Um, you know, he's like, he wanted to ride on everything. Like, like, well, with the Autopia cars, come on, let's go ride them. You know, and he, <laughs> he, he was an adventurer. You know, he, you know, he'd, he'd climbed all the great mountains of the world. And Frank was just really, you know, he was very special. And it was a very sad day when, I got the call from Marty Scalar on a late Sunday night that Frank had, you know, passed in that helicopter accident. It was very sad. Very sad for the company. Uh, very sad. Um, Frank was just such such an amazing guy. Let, let me uh, let me tell you a story about Frank. I, I've told a million stories about Frank, but this one is just, you know, this is the one that, this is one I'll tell you a little bit about the man personally. You know, I ran into you know, I was in Paris, you know, working in, in a, and I ran into Frank and his wife, you know, at, one, at the um, Festival Disney. He'd be in one of the restaurants. And then somebody would say, oh, we saw Frank down at, um, you know, Cafe Orleans at Disneyland with he and his wife. And then somebody go, well, I saw Frank, you know, he was in Florida and he was, you know, and, and everyone saw him at these Disney restaurants eating, you know, and we'd be sitting around at lunchtime and say like, oh, somebody saw him at such and such place. You know? So it's like, what is going on? So somebody actually cornered Frank one time 
And he said, um, so he said, Frank, you know, what, what's going on? We, we keep seeing you at these restaurants. Like, you know, it's like most obscure, sometimes really obscure, some really tiny, some, you know, some major. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. He says, you know, I've been hearing for a long time that the food at Disney parks is not very good. Right. I get letters. So I decided I'm going to try every restaurant in every Disney theme park. Oh, wow. Holy smokes. And I am going to become an expert. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, Frank was a lawyer. Okay. Frank loved asking millions. He'd, he'd love it. You know, he'd ask a million questions about anything you're doing. And he was like really engaged, you know. So he was actually building his own case to become this expert because what he would do is he would take two paths at that point in time. He would tell people, yes, I know what the problem is. We're fixing it. And then he'd go to the people who needed to fix it. And he'd tell them because he had been to every restaurant in the Disney company. And you're like, and he didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell any, he didn't make a big deal out of it. He didn't do any of that. Well, and that's key because, you know, so many times when executives try and make a show of being on the ground, you know, if you, if all your assistants go in advance and tell that you're coming, it's not, you're not getting the real experience. He, oh, yeah. he was getting the real experience, <laughs> but that's him. That was just him. You know, it was like, you know, uh, there, there's, there's so many, you know, just, a, just amazing stories about him. And, you know, I, when I was doing space mountain, <laughs> at, you know, I spent a lot of time with both Michael and Frank, you know, in Paris, because and, and, and when you when I was working in Paris, one one night by the Iser, I'll tell you, I, I had I had been working all day, and I left around five thirty in the afternoon and went home, and I had two little kids. My wife was living there with me, and we had our little kids. So then, about um, oh I don't know about midnight, I just got up again and went back to work. You know, so and this was when Disneyland Paris, where the buildings were up at. Everything was just mounds of dirt. So I walked through the two buildings. I walked through the buildings of where Star Tours was and where the Captain EO Theater was going to be. And I'm walking out. And it's almost pitch black out there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, there'd be some construction light going on. And I'm walking through Discoveryland. And I see somebody walking kind of like around there, you know. And I'm getting closer and closer. And I'm looking at it. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, it's Michael, you know. So, Michael? And he goes, oh, thank God, Tim, you know. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, what are you doing? He goes, "Uh, I just got in. I can't sleep. So I'm just walking around the park. And I go, well, come on, let's let's go, you know. Let's go. Let's let's take a tour. So we walked past Videopolis, and we're heading towards, uh, and I said, well, hey, let's go into uh, Visionary. And this was our this was our Jules Verne time machine circle vision show. Mm-hmm. And so I had designed this whole pre-show that kind of set up the whole going into um, where a timekeeper was and the circle vision show. And and um, and that's a whole other story unto itself. But go into the pre-show, and there's like two or three programmers there. Tom Fitzgerald was in there, you know, and Bob Zalk, who were like coordinating this, the, the video of how this is going. And this is now like, I don't know, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. There were a couple of people kind of rolled up in the corner sleeping. Uh, and then there were some other people there. So I, I come walking in and I'm like, 
hey, how's it going, guys? <laughs> and so and so when you think about this, the, this is a story that on money levels that it really always appealed to me and, and, and really had a big impact on me is that typical of people when they get done, you know, sometimes they can't work during the day because there's construction going on. So you have to do your programming at night. And as you can easily imagine, it just runs 24 hours a day. And when you're there at two o'clock or two 30 in the morning or something like that, and, and it had nothing to do with me, but you're walking in and you've got the CEO of the Walt Disney company with you. It has an impact on everybody. It has an impact on him. And it has, I mean, it's not people trying to get bonus points or anything. They're just like doing their jobs. And, um, and, it, and it shows that at that time, you know, the management really care. And when they care, you care. And that's probably where that project, you know, I don't know. I mean, the project was enormously successful from a creative point of view. You know, there were problems financially and had nothing to do with us. But, um, you know, so it means something. And that always meant a lot to me, you know. Um, so, you know, we walk around and, and um, you know, Frank, Frank would be the same way. Frank Wells was just the same way. He was just like, you know, he's like, well, what's going on? I want to go ride everything. Let's go see what's going on. What are these guys doing over here? So opening day of the park, my wife and I walked into Discoveryland and it was press day. And the press can come into the park. They're also, they also bring in, they brought in all these celebrities, you know, so they're all mingling around and it's mostly the press. And it was the first time, like I'd been on site wearing suit and tie, you know, it was crazy. You know, it's like, you're used to just, you know, freezing your tail off, you know, working in the wintertime. And, um, and so I, my wife and I come into Discoveryland and there's a huge crowd, like middle in the middle of the land. And I can see it's like big crowd, must be a hundred people there. And I'm like, you know, I don't know what this is. I, I know, you know, you get assigned uh, times to go talk to Fret to the press and do all that. But this was on schedule. I didn't know what it was. So I get closer and I see in the middle of this group is Frank Wells. And he's conducting this kind of now he's not conducting it, but he kind of got trapped there somehow. And there's this impromptu press conference. And so, you know, they're all asking him questions and Frank being the elegant guy that he is and wearing his, I don't know, very elegant suit and tie and all that. And I kind of come up to the edge and as soon as he sees me, he, he, stops, he stops everything and he goes, listen, listen, if you guys want to know all about this discovery land and everything we're doing for that, here's the guy you want to talk to. Well, I can tell you right now, these people, the press people, have zero interest in talking. <laughs> okay, okay. So that kind of quickly disperses this group. And um, so Frank comes walking over to me and my wife, and, and we start walking out of Discovery Land toward the hub. And Frank is like, you know... Tim, I got to tell you, you know, Michael and I are so excited about the park, we're so positive, we're, you know, all the, the, the collective work of all the Imagineers, it's just fantastic, it's just, and he stops, and he, like, walks over about three or four steps and picks up a piece of trash and puts it in his pocket. So he's like, um, he says, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's just great. The park is beautiful. Oh my God, I can't believe what a, what a great job you guys have done. Goes over and picks up another piece of trash. <laughs> and he goes, what is the matter with these people? You know, the park is so beautiful. We've done everything. 
What is the matter with these people? And then as we continue walking, he sees a drink cart. And he goes over the drink cart and he grabs two Coke cups. And now I'm wearing a suit. He's wearing his probably many thousands of dollars suit. <laughs> but he was, you know, Frank, you know, these guys are all these tall, elegant, athletic kind of guys. And, you know, so, so he grabs these two cups. And he hands me one of the cups. And he goes, come on, Tim, we're going to clean the park. We're going to walk, go out to play in the park. Amazing. So we walk out of Discovery Line, go to the hub. We walk, we walk down Main Street to Town Square. Right? And we're picking up. I mean, there's not a lot of trash, but I mean, it's just, you know, it's like. And we actually ended up walking around this merchandise cart with this young French woman who's, you know, working there. And Frank's kind of walking around the cart, picking up some stuff that he's seen on the ground, putting the trash, you know, put it in his Coke cup and. And I said, don't mind him. He's just the president of the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we take our trash and we throw it into one of the, you know, the bins there, you know. And so there's a men's room there. We're in there. We're washing our hands, you know. And Frank comes out and he's like, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'll never forget. I was like washing my hands and I'm just looking at Frank going, oh, my God, this is amazing, you know. So we get out of the, we walk out of the bathroom, you know, and typical Frank, he goes, oh, you know, I got a meeting I go to, and he starts jogging toward the Disneyland Hotel. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I, I literally stood there and said to myself, we will never fail with this, with this kind of attitude. Because in a span of about, of about 15 minutes or less, maybe 12 to 15 minutes, Frank went from having 100 press people listen to every word to walking down the street and picking up trash. Believe me, that kind of impact on you when you're developing things for a company is really quite, it is very impactful. It's very impactful. It, it means a lot because if they care from the very top to the very bottom, and that's why the company grew, you know, it, it just grew like, it grew like crazy, you know, and, uh, so it was, it was very cool. It was amazing that they had the foresight to get both Michael and Frank. Uh, we, when we were talking about the 50th anniversary of Disney World, we were talking about when they got introduced down there and their speeches couldn't be more different. You know, Michael's talking about, you know, we've got a, you know, every, this stuff is, you know, great creative energy and like, this is art and everything and real soaring speech. And Frank's like, I just want to shake everybody's hand, you know, like I want to meet everybody who works for Disney. So uh, that one, two punch was really critical. Uh, I was curious, you know, about Michael Eisner. I mean, he had this reputation as such a creative guy and a forward looking guy. What was he like to pitch to? Um, they were really, both of them, well, Michael, it was really easy to pitch him because he doesn't sit there and just be quiet. You know, he's like, mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, okay. All right. So what, and it actually, may, it takes the tension right out of the presentation. I mean, it, it really did. It, it, it really helped a lot. And I don't know how much I can, um, it does, uh, I was just going to say for some inexplicable reason, and I, I even to this day, I don't understand it. Somehow, Michael just connected with me. Mm. You know, I, I don't understand why. Um, but I, you know, I, I, 
I just kind of did my work. And I, my work was always, you know, it's a tangible asset. You know, you can create something and say, this is what we're going to do here. And um, it really helped a lot. And I think he really kind of connected to creative people. So I, I got along great with him. After Frank's passing, you know, Michael, the, the company became extraordinarily complex. You know, they took on ABC and ESPN and the company. Right, right. In Michael's last 10 years, I think he, you know, he, he was too distracted and I was disappointed in him. And, and I liked him a lot. But, but um, when you think about that whole dynamic and what happened with the company, what was going on, I mean, I, I've done speeches with groups of people and they would get on, you know, Heiser was terrible, I was terrible. Well, let me tell you something, without those two guys, without the efforts of, of, of Roy Disney Jr. and all that, there would be no Disney company today. I mean, it was all going to be, it was in the process of being, um, you know, after Epcot, the company was in trouble financially. There was green mail going on. They were talking about, uh, a group was talking about coming in, buying the company, selling off bits and pieces, selling off Walt Disney World, selling the library, just, just pulling it all apart. But Roy hung in there. He got the right guys. And and, 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 and Michael Isley ended up actually writing a book about the partnership that he had. And he talked about a variety of different partnerships of people. And, um, and it was really kind of, you know, that's what I, I, I can't explain that. I, I, I'd like to see somebody, I'd like to say somebody knew this was all going to work together, but there was something about their relationship that just worked really, really well. Michael would be like, Hey, we're going to do this and we're going to go to the moon and, and all that. And then Frank could be like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Maybe we're not, but, you know, let's see what we can do to, you know, he was like, it was, it was, there was kind of a little brother, big brother kind of yin yang mm. kind of thing going on there. Mm. And, um, and it, and it, and it really worked. There was something about the energy there, you know, that was really great. One of the things when I, when I will tell you um, that when I was um, in, well, post opening of Disneyland Paris in 92, you know, for the next two, well, actually ended up being just the next three years, I was working on, getting that Space Mountain project built over there. Yeah, it was probably late 93, 94, something like that. But Frank died in April of 94. Um, but I, when I run a project, I have a team meeting every morning, 8.30. And the whole point of the meeting is not to have the meeting. You know, I don't like meetings. <laughs> but it, it's kind of like a huddle. And in this particular case, I would have a, a meeting, um, you know, at the model. And everyone sits around on the tables. And um, like I give updates, find out what's going on, where we need help. And it's not a meeting to solve the problem, but it's a meeting to address issues. That's what it was all about. And about, and I don't know why this happened, but it was in the model shop, you know, in, in the building that we did you know, all the development over for Disneyland Paris. And a couple of times um, I'm in the middle of the meeting and I see Frank come, Frank Wells come walking through. And then Frank would just come and sit at one of the edge of one of the tables. You know, I was like, okay. And I didn't stop. I just kept going. It's like somebody else just came into the room. And so there'd be a break in the point. I'm like breaking the meeting and it's so, so Frank, can we help you? And he goes, no, he says, I, I got a meeting here somewhere in this building. I don't know where it is, but you, what you guys are doing here is so much more interesting. Let's, what are you guys talking about? Let's just, I want to be listening. And I go, you know, Frank, I think they need you up in that conference room that I can see all these people looking down and they can see you. And <laughs> you know what, Tim? You're probably right. So I'll see you guys. Thanks. Keep up the good work. You know? And again, 
it's another indicator that, you know, he wasn't trying to be flashy. He would just kind of come down and his energy would be, and he'd be sit there and he's not demanding attention. He just like wanted to listen, you know, and he'd be, because he was really fascinated by the whole process. And uh, so, you know, that's what they were, you know, he, that's what Frank was. He was true blue. He, he was like, here he was at the top of the world, but he was just like a guy, you know, just a guy. And if you had any problem, I, I, I don't want to get it. I mean, I didn't have any problem, but there were some issues that sometimes get sticky in the company and people would go talk to Frank and he'd be like, okay, I understand. And then he would proceed to do every right step to correct the problem. Hmm. He didn't. He wasn't a screamer. He, he was never like that. Michael wasn't either. You know, he wasn't a screamer. But Michael was always like, "Let's push, 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 push." And you know, and I think he really counted on Frank to kind of pull the reins back a little bit. But they did amazing things, and um, and that that it was a combination. Like I said, it was combination that I don't, you know, I don't think I'll ever see, uh, again, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the, the integrity and sincerity and it was, it was powerful. It was powerful stuff, powerful times, amazing people. I, I love hearing those stories about Frank because I mean, people, uh, people like from sort of your generation who were there at that time, all speak so positively of him and it yeah. seems like everybody just has these wonderful stories of him and i just love those stories from that first decade of eisner and wells where yeah. it it seems to me just from as an outsider that you know obviously they knew the movie and television business inside and out so that that was old hat to them but theme parks it's almost like they had a sort of wide-eyed excitement for theme parks, because maybe the experience of building something physical was new to them. I don't know. It just seems like there was a real enthusiasm there in those early years for that, just from these stories that you're telling. Well, I think I think I think there was an honest assessment of what the Walt Disney Company's assets were. And when you think about Walt Disney World, there's no place like it on the in the world, in my right. opinion. And I, you know, I know a lot of people who want to do that. That's number one. Number two, the other asset that that they enjoyed as a management team, but also they have they have their lieutenants who are actually running these other things, and that happened to be that they completely lucked out in terms of having a staggeringly successful, I mean, um, uh, valuable, I should say, valuable uh, library, just in the just just as video cassettes were being introduced. And they did that same kind of theatrical seven-year cycle for their uh, when they did the animated film releases for on video and the on VHS tape. So that business under I think Bill Mechanic was the guy who's head of that um, just exploded. I mean, the development exploded. And I think that they saw you know Michael was Michael loved hotels. He loves architecture. He loves building. And I think that that was one of the other reasons why he may have been fascinated. Um, there's another, and, and also I think because he, the film studios have a particular kind of attitude towards talent. You know, there's, you know, people come, they go, they film, they film, they're on the on the set, on the on the, the studio, on the set, whatever, and they come and go. But there was a permanent thing about Imagineering that I think was really appealing to these guys, mm. and and so Michael kind of used it as like Walt did his own personal design company. And I'll tell you, we paraded more celebrities through Imagineering than you can even begin to imagine. <laughs> and, and, and there is actually a story that I, I, I will tell you, 
not a story, but a kind of a collective of stories that took place because of Michael's interest in, you know, in, in Imagineering. And Imagineering has always been kind of, and I'm talking about these are the whatever it was, 35 years ago. This is when, you know, this was the place of like the skunk works. This is where things were, you know, you couldn't get into Imagineering, right? So when Michael wanted to entice somebody to come to work for, you know, come and do work with, with, with Disney, he'd always roll out the Imagineers or open the doors to Imagineering. And um, I mean, I gave, I gave tours to, you know, Michael Jackson. Actually, I presented Michael Jackson, the Living Seas, but I, um, you know, Chevy Chase. I mean, I, mean, uh, I spent a lot of time with Robin Williams. Um, it, there were just a lot of, a lot of people uh, that would come there. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not, I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you this in very specifically. There's a very specific reason why I'm telling you this is that when you go to the studio and I go to the studio, I'd go to the studio quite often there and then you'd see somebody who's famous and, and they all kind of like have this aura about them when they're at the studio because they are the celebrity. They are the commodity in that studio. And I'm not, anyway, that's just my assessment. of. It. However, when they came to Imagineering, they knew, number one, that this was something really special. Number two, they're not the star of the show. And number three, they have this, um, they, they felt like they were being um, shown something very special and they were quite humble about it. <clears throat> I remember uh, Chevy Chase came in um, one day and so I had to go out and meet him at the lobby and, and then he had kind of an entourage with him. And so I would take them on a certain tour and then I hand them off to somebody else. And at the time, we were developing star tours and we had one of the sound stages in the back there, or, or, or excuse me, a whole lab thing built with one of the simulators. And a good friend of mine, Doug O'Blanc, was in charge. He was the engineer in charge of all that whole, you know, star tours thing. So I run back in, you know, so a couple hours later and I come back and I, and I run into the whole group again and they're leaving. They're heading out, um, heading down the hallway, heading out to the front door. And I see Chevy Chase walking down the hallway and he's got this, he's got this thing he's just carrying with him like this. You know, just walking out, but he's just walking out. With it. But he's holding it like, it's like this really delicate thing. Yeah. And I knew it was. What it was, was my good friend, Doug Vonk, when he would take people and put them on the simulator, you know, and they would kind of do a test program and show it. He would give everybody kind of this certificate. And the certificate was, I survived, you know, Star Tours or the simulator, whatever. It was kind of a, an official thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I come up this, so he, 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 so Chevy Chase is carrying this thing in his hands like this, you know, like he's like, like it's like it's a it's like a religious artifact. Yeah. And I said, you know, because I'm used to these guys just doing shtick, and I'm, you know, I'm like, so what are you gonna do with that? You know? And he sincerely looks at me and he goes, like, like, are you kidding? I got this for riding this simulator. I'm this is really, I'm gonna treasure this. It's like, and he wasn't doing a funny, you know, Chevy Chase thing. He was really, really sincere. And of all the things that I found when I found when I when when people would come to Imagineering, I found this this behavior um, quite typical 
And they, they were in awe of being part of the inside of what this process of Imagineering was all about. And I found that to be it was really kind of like rewarding, you know. I, I the one thing I, I will tell you really quickly, actually, it's a two-part story. Um, uh, when we were working on the Living Seas building, it wasn't open yet, and I got this call like, "Hey, you know, can you meet? We got some people coming. Can you just come to the front front of the pavilion? We'll open up the construction fence. We'll let you in. Let these people in." So, you know, anyway, Kirk Douglas uh, is was filming a commercial, I think American Express commercial. Uh-huh. So, so he comes in and, and Kim and I are, I mean, I meet him at the front door and I'm taking him through the queue line, taking him through the queue line and the queue line for the Living Seas Pavilion was about the history of undersea exploration and, you know, early dive suits made out of pig skins and mm-hmm. barrels that people would go down in the ocean. And they were all ancient artifacts that we, that I have, that, that, you know, we collected, we had collected. And one of the last segments, just before you go into where the pre-show is going to be, there was a, we had this, uh, a good friend of mine, Tom Sherman, built this 11 and a half foot long Nautilus submarine. And behind it, I had found a 20,000 Leagues poster. And when we come around the corner and Kirk Douglas sees that poster and he just freezes. He's like, oh my God, I would love to get a 20,000 Leagues poster. I go, great, I'll send you one. You know, I, I, I have I have two or three more. I'll send you one. And so I got his information and I sent it off to him. <laughs> so then so then a few weeks later, I mean, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, whatever, I get this letter from Kirk Douglas. And he's like, hey, Tim, I can't tell you how much, you know, really enjoyed the tour. And so he says, I really, you know, he wrote this letter and he, he's, you know, it's like really appreciated. Love the poster. Thank you for your consideration. So that's it. You know, et cetera. And I was like, wow, okay, that's great. That's great. So part two of this story. So I'm how many years later? I don't know, 15 years later, or something like that. You know, um I'm, oh no, it's 10 years later, probably 10 years later. So I get a call another again. This is we're opening Disneyland, I mean uh opening Space Mountains under construction, and the the we built the Nautilus submarine and and um and uh, the train station there. It was part of the second day's, second day's development. So anyway, the construction fence is all the way around the mountain. And I get this call. It's like Jeffrey Katzenberg showing up and he wants to go through Space Mountain. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So we unlock the gate, Jeffrey Katz, and the park is closed. It's dark at night, you know. So, so Jeffrey Katzenberg comes in and he has Michael Douglas with him. And so Michael Douglas walks in through the fence and he sees the Nautilus submarine. And he stops. He's like, Whoa. He says, I remember when I was a kid and my dad was shooting 20,000 leagues on the Disney lot. And uh, he says, I remember going and seeing those sets and seeing that stuff. And, and again, he's completely amazed. This isn't like Michael Douglas superstar. He's like, he's like a little kid again. Right. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, yeah, that's great. It's great. So, you know, I said, we're just finishing up, you know, we're, we're building the interior and all that stuff. And I said, and I said to, um, and I said to Michael, I said, by the way, I just want you to know that I met your father one time. And I told him this story about, you know, and I said, you know, I sent him the poster and your father sent me a really, really nice letter. And he kind of goes, that's my dad. He sends letters to people and he really cares. And I was like, wow, it was really gratifying. 
So Michael Douglas says, well, you know what you should do? You should, you should invite him to the opening of Anonymous. Yeah. So wow, said, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so again, I didn't ask anybody. I just wrote him a letter. I just wrote him a letter and I said, um, so I don't know if you remember me, but I gave you the poster and all that stuff. And I said, you know, we're opening a full-size Nautilus submarine in, uh, in Paris. And, you know, we'd be interested in, to know if you want to come. So he wrote me another letter back and he just said, you know, God, it sounds great. I'm not able to travel these days. But anyway, the, the, the point of me telling you all this is that people are fans. I don't care who they are. Because everyone has a story about the parks. Everyone in those in that era had stories about Disney. And they were all kind of very positive. And um, and it was, and it was, I don't know, it it I never thought, you know, like it, it was just an opportunity to to meet people who were equally as interested as 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 we all were, you know, and as we all are, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. just a, it's just a, you know, it's a different time, you know, it's People really care. It's much more innocent in a way, and uh, and the and like I said, the company the company was booming at that time, and, and everybody wanted to be on the Disney bus. You know? I have to say it was, it was kind of amazing. You know, I mean, I, Michael Jackson was that was another interesting thing. I showed him the Living Seas Pavilion. It was still under construction, and um, and so. Um, we took a tour, took a tour of Imagineering, and then we came back to the conference room and there was a whole bunch of people and Jeffrey Katzenberg was talking about some business things. And you could see Michael Jackson was not really interested in any of this. And he turns to me and he goes, I have a question for you. I said, yeah. And so we walked the whole length of the conference room and everybody following us. And he came up to <laughs> one of my paintings of the tank, you know, and there was a submarine in it. And Michael Jackson looks at it and goes, can I ride in that submarine? And I went, sure. <laughs> if we can build it, you can ride in it, I guess. I, I don't know. Whatever so like, you oh, say. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like, you know, and it was, you know, it was, it was just, uh, it was just, it was just kind of, again, like I said, the fact that people are so enamored, they're so enamored by getting in, you know, seeing behind the, the curtain, the company behind the curtain, it, it, you know, was, it was, um, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Well, I would imagine, especially with people you'd never expect, like Michael Jackson, of course, everybody knew that he was a big fan, but some of these right. other people, it's like, you know, getting the chance to impress Kirk Douglas, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, you know, it was just, you know, they're just, they're just people, you know, they were just, right. people. It was right. just like, so he was just so, you know, yeah. He was like a guy. And the fact that he would, you know, if, if he had a secretary write something or no, but he actually sat and, you know, signed it, did it again. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like shocked. I keep all these things. I mean, I, I, um, well, John Landis, I got a letter from him. Um, spent a lot of time with Robin Williams. I spent a whole mother's day with Robin Williams. He was going to try and do, <laughs> he was going to try. I know it's really weird. Um, yeah, he was. We were trying to get him to do um, a timekeeper for Nigeria, mm-hmm. and he said he could speak French. And the French people said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> we heard his French. He can't speak French, you know. Um, but I think they used his. 
and we had him and then, you know, there was a problem with Disney and him and with the Aladdin thing. And he took no credit for that, but then they promoted the movie with his name and he got mad. And, you know, I, that, that's all movie studio stuff. I don't care. About yeah. But they wound up using him for, I wanted to talk about visioneering because I mean, that was a cornerstone of discovery land. Uh, and then, you know, they later put it in, in America at, or at Walt Disney world with, Robin Williams. Um, yeah, but that, I'll tell you, that Robin tr- soundtrack, they, they recorded, we ran through some, we did some readings uh, on that Mother's Day. Remember, all day we were there with him. And he did some readings on it. And then he got angry with Disney. And he goes, I'll look at, I, I, you know what, I, I, I won't participate in your attraction. But if you have anything, if you, you know, they recorded all the, all the, all the soundtracks and all the, uh, the run through on the script, the script reading. And so they just record it. And he goes, if you have something in the can, you can use that, but I'm not coming in again to record this. Again. Oh, wow. So, he, so, they, so they had to patch that all together. You know, they, they kind of, and, and in my opinion, the attraction didn't work as well. It worked well in Paris. It didn't work. I don't think it worked any very well in any other place. It's just somehow, I don't know. It just didn't quite click, but, but I will tell you the story of what that was about. When Disney made their deal to go into, into France, um, there were conditions, obviously, from a financial point of view, there were all kinds of conditions, but also from a story point of view, there was a, 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 a requirement in the contract where the French wanted to have representation in the park. And they said, and they said, we need to be part of, you know, what this is, what, you know, we want uh, uh, an attraction about France. And they said, possibly, a possibility from our point of view could be a circle vision attraction. Well, I mean, for me, circle visions were, were a novelty, were unique. But after after you saw too many of them at in um, World Showcase, um, they just they have a limited time. Uh, they limit have, have a limited life a shelf life. Mm-hmm. So the decision, uh, I think Tony probably pushed it more than anything else. Um, he said, "All right, well, why don't we just take a circle vision format?" and turn it into an attraction. Like, well, what does that mean? Like, well, so that's where we put the time machine in, put the robot in. I designed the robot and I said, we're not going to have any skin on it. It's all going to be fiber optics on the inside. And um, and then uh, we sculpted it. I mean, I had a, I had a, I did a study. I, there's rendering show. I did a whole painting of Robin Williams as a robot mm-hmm. and, um, and then I had a sculptor make something out of paper so we could get the size and we put it on an animatronic head and worked it all around and see if it was going to work. And so he kind of has that, but then we had to modify it again. And so anyway, so in terms of an attraction that worked out, you know, I don't think, uh, I think it worked. It was a good Tom Fitzgerald did the production on the T on the, on the film itself. Michelle Piccoli was Jules Verne, you know, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it, it, I think it worked out pretty well. You know, I mean, in Paris, if for some reason it worked in Europe, I don't think it worked as well in a, any other places. That's interesting. I don't I know. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of became a kind of cult classic. I mean, I know a lot of people who really, really miss it, who, and I think it's a unique application of circle vision uh, with those, I mean, those animatronics at the time were really cutting edge. Uh, a lot of the effects that they, they used, uh, it was a lot of uh, groundbreaking stuff or the first you know, time it had been used in that way. So I think it left a, a real imprint. Yeah. It, um, 
you know, we had to design that state, that set, and then did a Pepper's Ghost effect with Nine Eye, and um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then the ending scene, you know, the digital scene with the, the, the flying car. And oh, by the way, the attraction was sponsored by Renault. That's why we had a flying car at the end. Okay. And that's yeah. And we had um, that was the other thing that I had to deal with over there on opening day for Disneyland Paris. I believe there were something like 10 corporate sponsors and every one of the attractions I had in discovered that was sponsored. Hmm. I had Phillips, Renault, Mattel, Coca-Cola, Kodak, IBM. And I think there were seven. Did I say seven? I can't remember. BNP. I mean, all of them were sponsored. So, I mean, and they, and they were, I mean, none of the other lands had that many. Um, I think Eddie may had some on Main Street, but not like big corporate sponsors, like Renault sponsored the supervision or the, the visionary of the show. So that just complicates your life significantly. And then I would complain about it. And then people would say, well, you know, they're bringing in X millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. So, hmm. oh, you suck it up. You know, you yeah, right. Mm. <laughs> nobody cares. No, like you. I mean, you can complain. Nobody. I mean, like, as long as it doesn't mess your schedule up, then it's your job to get it done. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, you've mentioned Space Mountain. The the, the French Space Mountain was another a groundbreaking experience. It was, in yeah. many ways, for a Disney uh, a Disney park. Um, but that's another project. It had a long development, um, uh, a lot of a lot of changes along the way. Correct? Oh yeah. Well, it started out. I mean, I started the whole thing, and, and uh, you know, and again, uh, you know, again, Tony was kind of our Tony Baxter was kind of our overall lead, um, you know, for all of Disneyland Paris. And so his his thing was, you know, everybody uh, loves the Space Mountain size of the Space Mountain in Walt Disney World. It's three hundred mm-hmm. feet. And the other ones are, you know, um, 62 meters. They're 200 feet in diameter. And um, so I, you know, when I was doing Discovery Land, Space Mountain, like usual, was not going to be there on opening day. And I don't think it ever has been. It was late for Florida. It was definitely late for tomorrow. Well, no, I, I built the Space Mountain in Hong Kong for opening day. Um, but, <laughs> um, but that was going to be, you know, it, it was definitely not, not going to make you know, we had a lot of E attractions for the opening for Disneyland Paris, but when it came to Space Mountain, we just they just said no, we can't do it. So when we were master planning the site, I I, I put in a three hundred foot or a, a hundred meter, three hundred thirty foot diameter Space Mountain, and we were going to make it was going to be called Discovery Mountain, and and it was like it, you'll see in all the early renderings that, that were done that I did. I mean, I did most of them, and I, that's all I was mentioning that I I did that Cantonary. Uh, roof structure on it, very similar to what John Hinch had designed in the early Space Mountain long ago, back in the 50s. But it was not doable. And, and so um, the problem was that, I mean, I kept guarding that space because everybody wanted to steal that space. So we ended up getting the money to do this, the Nautilus. I told Steve Brooks, the guy who was working for me, I said, lay this out, but push it as close to Autopia as you possibly can. And so you're, you're, you're squishing something up against the edge when there's all this other free land around. And so it's like, hmm. people are like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, 
no, because we're going to save this thing for Space Mountain, and that's yeah. what we're going to. That's what we ended up doing, and we ended up doing it. Um, and and it opened, you know, three years after the park. And so I, you know, I, you know, there's always a lot of controversy about who's responsible for what ideas, and I'm not ever going to get into that. But I will tell you that as much as I loved Space Mountain at Disneyland, I really don't like, you know, like we're going to go to outer space. You know, I don't want to do, you know, clickety click, clickety click, three loops yeah. up to the top. So, you know, um, there are rides out there that were just like almost like what I call exhibition rides. They had a catapult on them. Mm-hmm. So, like we said, you know, why don't we just take this catapult and shoot the cannon, shoot, you know, shoot the ride to the top of the mountain and then just let it fall rather than, you know, like really accelerate. I mean, like, I want to go to space. And I want to be on an incline. I want to launch, right? That's what we want to do. So Space Mountain was the first catapult launch coaster. Now, there were rides that were a horizontal loop, you know, horizontal down to the loop, and then kind of went back to the loop again, but not to launch a coaster. It was the first one ever. Secondly, we had three inverted loops on the inside, and... Um, and we kind of made Tom Morris's dream of onboard audio come true. <laughs> <laughs> been His long, long dream. And, and, you know, it was a real technological thing, and I think it was great, you know. And the other thing we did is that the, the queue line went right through the mountain, so you could actually walk through and see this whole darkened space mountain kind of thing on the inside. And we did that because of the weather over there, and then you walk out, then you kind of exit through the mountain and then into a load and load area. Then you get shot into the mountain again. Um, the ride is twice as fast as any other space mountain road. It goes up to 55 miles an hour. And, um, you know, that whole track is like that whole mountain. It's 62 meters. It's the 200-foot diameter track, our building. And it, the whole thing is loaded with track. And um, it was a phenomenon when it opened. Um, mm-hmm. it, I will never forget um, opening day for the park in 92. Um, when we had the opening day and the big ceremonies and all that. And a typical opening day for a Disney park is always not, the attendance is never what people think it's going to be. They're like, oh, it's going to be, you know, 50,000 people there. Well, there were like 18,000 people. And that happens on every park. I mean, I don't know why people think everyone's going to come on opening day, but they don't, you know, they don't. I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe in Tokyo they would do it, or maybe in Shanghai, you know, but they never do. So, so the interesting, and the reason I bring that up is because for the French, for the, for, the, for the visitors, and for the cast members, no one really, really understood what this, what I'm going to say, quote, Disney thing is all about. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, Disney, but Disney, like, it's not part of their culture. Mm-hmm. However, when we opened Space Mountain in Paris, uh, three years later after the opening, um, they did a TV special, Shoot the Moon. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a lot younger then. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that on my hard drive somewhere. Yeah. yeah oh, God. But, I, well, there's an interesting story. If I, I have to, I'll have to tell you about what went on there at that time. But, uh, but anyway, did this special. Um, there, Coca-Cola did a promotion. They, they printed up 100 million Coke cans and, and Space Mountain logo on it. And uh, and I'll tell you when it came to the opening ceremonies for that attraction, 
I will tell you that I have never seen and experienced so many happy French people in my life. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. It was it was my favorite my favorite project because it meant so much. And then we won the TEA award for attraction in 1995. And, yeah. And, um, well, and it had the perfect theme. I mean, that from well, Earth to the Moon with the Columbia, the Canon, and you know, as someone who was like grew up on like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, I mean, the, the whole idea of that Discovery Land was a just a great idea. And the fact that you could take an attraction as, uh, as known as space mountain and find a twist on it that made it tie into this like Jules Verne world. So perfectly, uh, it was such a cool idea. Well, the, the, what you just said there was basically the speech I gave at the TEA award when I, when I won the award, you know, I just said, I mean, it was a phenomenal team of people who engineered this thing. It, it was incredible. And, but I said, what, what we accomplished with this attraction is the thing that every person, and I said, every person in this room is looking for. You want the right story, the right character, the right ride system, and, and kind of the whole, everything just seemed right. You know, like we wanted to do a catapult launch. Okay, this was all dedicated to Jules Verne. Jules Verne's story for the Baltimore Gun Club shot a shot a, a projectile into space. You know, um, we had scenes from Jules Verne there. Steve Bramson did the uh, uh, onboard audio musical score, which was kind of amazing. And I get, if it isn't once a week, maybe once every two weeks, I'm always getting requests of, can you get them to bring back the original show? And there's a whole constituency in Paris that says, you know, Mission Two didn't work. We don't care about Star Tours. That should, or excuse me, Star Wars. That should be over at the studio tour. Can you bring back the French show? And I'm like, guys, I have nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> but you're right. I see that. I see that uh, on you know, like on Twitter. I see people asking for that all the time. It's a well, it left a mark. I mean, I'm sure it won't happen because I think the new administration. I mean, everything Disney wants to brand. They want to brand it. Disney product. However, however, the one thing I just got a letter from a guy. I just got an email from a guy who um, it's really, it's really heartwarming. I have to tell you, um, you know, this guy said, I, I always, I fell in love with Discoveryland and what that Jules Verne ride was going to be. And, and I, you know, I saw your artwork and I've always been afraid, you know, I mean, I saw it when I was nine years old and I'm, now I'm writing you 25 years later because it had an impact on my life. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I didn't, but the whole thing that we put together did. And I, you know, I was at, I was at a, one of those Marty Scalar talks at, at, at IAPA one year in Florida. And I was, after the talk, I got up and walked away and some guy came up to me and he said, you're the guy, you know, you were the one in, in shoot the moon. And I, he says, you know, you walking through Imagineering and seeing all those experts. And I didn't know an imagine, you know, Imagineering even existed. And, and I was so inspired by that. And then he told me his life history. He's like this world-class laser projection guy. He went to school in some institute huh. in Switzerland. And I was like, great. I'm you know, good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy you were inspired. I mean, you know, I, again, I, I find it hard to take any of that stuff personally, but collectively, it's very uh, rewarding. I have to tell you. It well, it's interesting to watch, you know, having a window on fans from around the world and how Paris really, I mean, you think of 
Disney fans in America, there's the generation that were there on the ground in the 50s, the sort of Disneyland generation, yeah. uh, grew up with Walt on TV, that sort of thing. There's, our, you know, Jeff and my generation, uh, sort of the Epcot generation. And oh, there's a big constituency of like diehard Epcot people who grew up in the Disney world. But seeing how there is a diehard European fandom that emerged from Disneyland Paris much more recently than the others. Uh, but there is, and now the fact that it's been around so long that there's a nostalgia for Parisian park things like there used to be for like Disneyland or for Disney world. It's been so interesting to watch that emerge. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, um, I think because, and here's what I got because I did a lot of press over there for Space Mountain. And I think it was because this whole concept of people who have very serious careers, like in engineering and architecture and design, would, would f- found a place called Imagineering and were able to actually use their career to build serious, serious, fun places. All right, this is not a concept prior to this. Uh, this, this is not a European concept. You know, I mean, it's it's like Europe has a very sophisticated attitude about things, um, and rightfully so. But in terms of, uh, uh, well, let, let me give I'll give you a very specific example. I was doing for a Space Mountain. I was doing a lot of press, and um, and um, one time, so I go into this room and there was like I don't know how many, lots of people, you know, in. And I just explained that I'm, you know, I'm from, I've worked at Walt's Imagineering. It's Walt's personal design company, you know. And um, we have, you know, it's a company that in, it's a very technical, artistic and technical based company. And we have over 150 different disciplines. And right now Imagineering has like, um, you know, feeds all the park and designs all the park and probably has 2,000, 2,500 employees. And you should have heard the murmur that went right through all of these people in the press. You know, they were like, and this young woman like raised her hand and she goes, can you explain that a little bit more? Like, like, well, why? What do you think? <laughs> well, we've heard of this Imagineering thing, but we thought Imagineering was like five guys sitting around like a card table designing <laughs> <lighting> stuff. <laughs> like, Oh, is that right? Oh, how interesting. Well, no, let me just tell you what goes on, you know. And then I think, as I said, I think that this kind of revelation that you could actually do things in technology and, I mean, serious, serious disciplines, you know, that and, and the complexity. I mean, I try to explain how complex these attractions are. You know, I mean, you know, we're, you, you can take the logistics of launching it a 22,000 pound train getting up to 55 miles an hour on incline in about four seconds. And let me tell you how complex that is. When you run five trains or even six trains in a system, the complexity of that, you know, you always have between two, you know, between all the trains, you're always, you're always spacing there so that you're spacing them all out and they're all very well set how they're going to, where they're going to be. And there's always a break zone in between. That's just how you do it. On top of that, the complexity of doing onboard audio, there are triggers in the track. And these things are down to micros, microseconds as to when 
you activate the next piece of music. So that it, and, and so from you and the guests, it sounds like one piece of music and, you know, it's like no seams, right? And it seems like one continuous thing. It's all bits and pieces that are locked together. And the complexity of doing this in a ride system that is moving, that is taking, you know, pounding, you really need to know what you're doing. This is, it may sound like, oh, an onboard sound system in a train. Yeah, big deal. Mm-hmm. What's a big deal? It isn't a car. Isn't that? Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like trying to explain to people why Autopia cars are so expensive. They're like, well, what do you mean? What's expensive? You know, I remember many, many years ago when we did Paris, you know, they were like, you know, $90,000 a piece. And they're like, what? You can buy a new Ferrari for like 70,000. Yeah. I said, do you think a Ferrari could take the hits that an Autopia car could take? It takes in an hour. How long do you think a Ferrari would last? It wouldn't last at all. And you have to build these things for this kind of the, the, the complexity of it and, the, and the, 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 the demands that are put on Disney parks because the needs for capacity to function is overwhelming. And that's why they're, you know, you, you want to, you know, like, there are always times in the company where somebody's going to go like, well, the studio wants to know like uh, Magic Mountain just got a wooden coaster for like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars know, <laughs> for three million dollars. Yeah, and uh, why does a Disney you know roller coaster or theme you know ride going to be fifty million dollars? Like, okay, well, would you like that coaster? Would you like a wooden coaster? <laughs> you want a wooden coaster, we'll get you 300 or 400 an hour. Our capacity has got to be at least 2,000 an hour because you have a lot more people. So if you want to use the metrics for money on how to build and how to maintain, and on top of the wooden coaster, the Disney attraction would fall apart in you know in six months, mm-hmm. literally fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know, that we, I had that experience, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but when McDonald's came into DCA, I had to build, you know, we were building this uh, – this roadside uh, ham- uh, hamburger stand and McDonald's decided they wanted to come in. And literally the day we signed off on, we had to sign off, the engineers had to sign off on all of the equipment that Disney put in. McDonald's signed up and they came in and they said, all right, well, we're going to have to use all of our equipment. And they go, we said, no way. There's no way we're using it because your equipment and your McDonald's will not last six months. Really? And, yeah. And they go, like, well, give me the, so the, our engineers, I remember, I remember our guys just saying, yeah, we had this meeting with McDonald's. They just don't understand. It's like, well, like, well, if you have a McDonald's, how many meals would you, would you, you know, in your McDonald's, if you have a, even a big high end one, how many meals would you serve in a day? And it was like, you know, I don't know, two, 2000 or something. I, I, I don't really remember. I don't yeah. remember. I said, yeah, well, we do that in an hour. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's the stuff you never think of like that. Yeah, right. The demands are overwhelming. And so when they got into it, they just said, fine, we'll give you our formulas. You use your equipment. I said, okay. I mean, if you don't believe this, we'll show you. And we'll take you into, into the Tomorrowland Terrace and take a look at it. You, you look at the demands are so overwhelming in terms of the quality that you need and the maintenance that you need and, you know, the wear and tear. And, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen animated props mm-hmm. or, or I've seen them doing testing on steel hinged 
components, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll cycle test it for months, you know, which, you know, have a machine do this thing. Mm -hmm. And you put it out there for two weeks and you can get a group of 12 year old girls to tear something apart. (laughs) Yeah. I mean it. I mean, I mean, I mean, if what you want to know what, you know what handrails are like, or excuse me, you want to know what, you know what, what people do in queue lines when they're waiting for people, you could have people dismantle a car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because they're just sitting there and like one person got it, turns a knob and then they move on. And the next person turns a knob. And by the time you're done, your whole fence is taken apart. And like, Oh, we don't know. I mean, you don't know because you, you know, you know, Worldwide, Disney probably entertains five, six hundred thousand people a day. Yeah. And they have to be safe and they have to be secure. Well, it's like engineering something for the space program or like like uh, the old thing about like making a, a, you know, a wrench for a nuclear submarine or an ashtray for like the, you know, the Navy or something. It's it has to hold up to uh, uphold to abuse and standards that you wouldn't see uh, anywhere else. That's fascinating about that. Yeah, that's that whole story of this eight hundred dollars hammer. You know. Yeah, they needed Jeff. They needed the broiler mater. That's right. Yeah, they get that conveyor belt. Yeah. Uh, in our Tomorrowland episode, uh, in the, back in the seventies uh, at Tomorrowland Terrace, they really advertised the broiler mation machine, which was their uh, cutting <laughs> edge uh, oh hamburger making machine. So uh, <laughs> you use that at Burger Invasion. That's right. <laughs> That's all wild. Um, I, know it's, I mean, it's stuff you don't, you know, you don't think about, you don't know, but um, it's very, I don't know. It's, you just kind of have to live to, you you learn to live with it and your expectations. You know, it's, it's the toughest part about doing a project and staying on schedule because um, there's so many hands that things go through. Yeah. And, and Disney goes the extra, well, again, I'm only speaking in my generation or when I was doing it, which was 10 years ago. Um, you know, it's, it's a very complex process that you go through and you have a lot of really, really smart, highly qualified people that have to touch projects in order to make them safe. And, um, you know, there's nothing more important. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, you know, I think people who don't know think it's a frivolous business, but it's not. It's a very serious, complex business. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk about it to people like, imagine you're going to come in and I, I talk about why learning how to design theme parks and themed environments is probably the best education in the world for you. You know, um, let's say that you're going to start a project and in five years, you're going to start the project and you're going to design a city for 70,000 people that don't live there. They come in every day. Mm-hmm. You have to understand about infrastructure, transportation, yeah. and you have to study different forms of architecture. You have to make it all work. Then you add a layer of complexity with theaters and shows and transportation systems within the park. Then you add rides and attractions on top of that. And it all has to mesh together. And you do it in five years. Mm-hmm. From dirt. <laughs> From yeah. dirt to the day you cut the ribbon. You know, sometimes it's six years. But it's very complex. And, it's really uh, remarkable. Well, I was thinking, like, when you were talking about the seas, the... I don't know how heavy that volume of water must be, but just the logistics of putting that much enclosed water in the middle of like a Florida swamp, basically, (laughs) and not having it fall through the middle of the earth. 
Uh, well, I can tell you, it's, it, I mean, the tank itself, I mean, the tank, just the water in the tank is five and a half million gallons and it's eight pounds per gallon. So you can figure that out. So what they do is they do what they call in Florida, they do spread footings. And it's like, it's a big slab that goes across. And believe me, I know that terminology, but I can't define what it is because I'm not a structural guy. Yeah. I'm, I mean, like I would think, I, I didn't want to be like a whole you know, where the carpet, you put something in the middle of the carpet and the, and the carpet goes right down through the hole again. It's, it's like, good luck. I hope we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like when you're dealing with something like that, you can't go in at last second. Like, oh, we're going to just change everything. You know, you're, uh-huh. you're committed. I, actually, in a way, I think things like that, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that that's really a challenge. But in really, in reality, in the process that we all go through, that we go through, <clears throat> there are people who just eat that stuff, engineers who just eat that stuff alive and they'll just, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, this, yeah, don't worry. We, we, we got this one. We know how to do that. You know? Yeah. You know? That's why you get the best people. That's what, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, you it, it, in a way, you know, you can't afford not to have the best people. I mean, that's that's really that's really the key, you know. And and oh, the other thing I was going to say in terms of this, I Adam, I just remember what I was going to say about that. Um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, again, in in the days that I started, all the people that I, most of all the people I work with, well, they spend their entire careers in Imagineering. I mean, it's not. An, I mean, I was there for thirty four years. Most of the people there, you know, I've known, I know people who were there for 40 years. Most of the people there long, long time, long, because it's, it's, it's a part of a culture, you know, and, that, and, and, and that's one of the reasons in that era that I was there of the 12 parks of the 12 parks that exist today, 12 being Shanghai. I started when Disneyland Magic Kingdom already built. So in my era, we built nine car wow. resorts nine wow and um so you know you know it's like you know there's a whole there are whole groups there are people who did certain ones and i never i worked on every park except i never worked on the um, uh, tokyo portfolio that was hmm. just a whole group of whole other group of people you know i was just that was just a different different group i worked on almost everything else you know uh with discovery land um it's so interesting because it, it took a Tomorrowland and rooted it in a specific time and place. And since we've been talking uh, Tomorrowland, I just wonder if you could talk to the fact that Tomorrowland seems to have been a theme that was always a tough nut to crack for Imagineers. I mean, going back to 1955, it was in Disneyland and Walt Disney World, it was the last land to be really tackled. And it wasn't until uh, you guys kind of shook up the formula that it really was there on opening day, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I, I love that the, when I, when I was growing up, I loved the, what I, what I, what I think was really the Tomorrowland for Disneyland, which was kind of the, um, you know, when we're talking about mission or, or flight to the moon that, um, uh, Aero Saarinen building, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of WA building, you know, I love that look. Matter of fact, if I was ever do it, if I could do any other Tomorrowland, you know, I, I couldn't do it in Hong Kong because there was other, there were other restrictions there. I mean, um, you know, you, the, 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 the very challenges that you're talking about are the very reasons I love doing Tomorrowlands. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Um, you know, because you kind of go with your audience and you go with what, what you're going to do and the Jules Verne stuff. You know, I just loved all the gadgets and gizmos. So when I was told to get on and do the, um, get on the, uh, uh, on the Hong Kong project to do Tomorrowland, um, boy, the first thought I had was, how do I do Tomorrowland in a city that looks like Tomorrowland? Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. So, right. Um, you know, that it, that's really the tough part. So we kicked it, you know, I just kicked it into a whole other world, which was basically to make it kind of like a, like uh, the theme was going to be more like a spaceport. And um, when you did a Tomorrowland Terrace or the Starliner Diner is what we call it, it was all, it was all propped out. Like, <clears throat> like if you were going to go on this journey to outer space, this is the point of destination because all of our attractions regardless of how you, whether you think they're serious or not, but all of our attractions are based on space travel, whether it was Buzz Lightyear or Space Mountain or, and we didn't really have that many attractions. The Autopia came in later, but I, that was with electric cars and, um, you know, that, that didn't work as well as that everyone, I, I think we made those too complex, but, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, you just have to come up with a theme that you kind of think works. And we put all these space globe, you know, planet globes all throughout the everywhere. There are hundred of them, just big lighting, you know, the the Orbitron thing in the middle was also a different design. And you know, <clears throat> you just have to try and find some kind of a theme, you know. And mm-hmm. and I'll tell you that they in in Hong Kong, they they loved it. I mean, they loved it. The whole park kind of tilted that direction, but um you know, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing to do. Epcot was always tough to do, you know, yeah. it's, you also didn't have, that's one of the reasons why I was telling you that I had an interest in doing kind of futuristic and contemporary architecture. And it was also, you didn't have a lot of guys, you know, at the studio or working in Imagineering who were great at that. You know, they can, they could copy a picture, but you know, those guys were so great in, in, you know, themed period stuff or, you know, Westerns or Knights in Shining Armor. And, you know, uh, Herbie did a lot of, I've got a big Herbie painting here um, uh, that I bought out of his estate, um, which was kind of a Renaissance thing. It's one of the most, and the costuming stuff is just beautiful. And, you know, like I said, Sam McKim's stuff was just magnificent in terms of his watercolors for old Western stuff. And all the artists were that way. There weren't really that many um, futurist. I mean, they brought in Bob McCall mm-hmm. to do some, you know, Tomorrowland paintings. You know that he, you know, he had done a lot of that mural at the Air and Space Museum, and yeah. but um, you know, it required like the young, the younger guys to come in and do that kind of stuff, like me. You know, I mean, I me among among many others. There were a lot of a lot of others. You know. Right. You know, that's when they were doing Star Tours. You know, they 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 had a lot of a lot of a generation that came up that was seeing you know kind of a post Star Wars movie where you know, that used future and space travel and all that was really alive and the design was big time. You know, we had, we have, I mean, I had a lot of guys I worked with got out of Art Center and went to work for Paramount, to work, doing a lot of work on the uh, Star Trek movies. You know, I mean, the, the entertainment, it was in that era. It was in that era, just kind of probably in the mid seventies and it kind of paid off with, with the Star Wars movies and all that where people were coming out of school and they were never taught Matter of fact, I, I, a guy, a good friend uh, who worked at Disney for a long time, was another art center guy, Greg Wilsbach. And, you know, he was like, hey, I am, um, you know, God, nobody ever taught us. Nobody ever taught us in art school that they needed people to design movies. 
<laughs> so they had to learn it on their own. And, and, and now, I mean, my God, everybody wants to do it. You know, it's like, yeah. In some, in some of the most beautiful art in the world, is, you know, I, I have to say, speaking of that, I mean, in the context of this, because it's the way my brain works, is it is that, you know, looking at those paintings, those production paintings in the Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So and that's a style that has kind of been pushed by Art Center. I mean, I, I, they're probably all original line drawing CAD scenes, but then what they do is they make them very painterly. And I, I love that style. I think they're beautiful. I don't know how they get them done. So, you know, I don't know. They must have a staff of guys. It looks like one guy doing them. All. I don't know. But, uh, but that's the way all the um, uh, Galaxy's Edge, all those paintings were done exactly that same way, that kind of real, real painterly, soft, used mood lighting. I, I just, I love that stuff. If I, if I could just paint like that, I would do that all the time. <laughs> right. Well, and there's so many more outlets for it now. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. you think of all these, all of these movies and shows and theme parks and I. Oh, gaming, gaming. Yeah. Oh, video games. Gaming Absolutely. Unbelievable. Yeah. And there's real money there. I mean, there, there's, you know, um, a good friend of mine, his son is finishing up at art center and I don't know, I don't know, EA or, um, one of the big gaming companies sent out a call and, you know, if you just send them in ideas or renderings or sketches or something for, um, you know, environments. And so this kid who was in school, he did it and, you know, they liked it. And so they paid him $20,000. Know, ever since discovery land, the tomorrow lands have tended to be more, I don't know, I guess you would say fantasy, more a fantastic, version of a tomorrow of, of science fiction. You see this in the Florida remodel and, and, you know, in the work you did in Hong Kong, it's, it's more fantastic than sort of real world Tomorrowland. Do you think there's still room in theme parks for that science factual type of presentation that a uh, Tomorrowland, especially Epcot did? Uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, the one thing that I realize, you know, as you get older, you know, you realize you have ideas about certain things and then you just kind of certain ones you just hang on to. Mm -hmm. And so um, and the reason I'm saying is because I, I, uh, when I was working on Epcot, I, I did this painting of what I thought the, 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 not the pavilions, but in between should look like. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't go very well at all, but, um, but it was, it was much more, nature uh, more of a integration of nature and technology mm -hmm. you know in other words you know building architecture built into a mountain and the way you get through it is you've got to go through a waterfall and the whole point is to try and get out of architectural styling because as we all know and you've mentioned it we all know that um futuristic architecture has you know, if it's it, it generally it's styling and its appeal for its styling jumps to generation and jumps to generation. Yes. You know, what what somebody may think of the 19. I mean, I never really liked the 1967 Tomorrowland, right? Uh, but I, the previous one in 55, I did like, you know, hmm. I like that kind of rounded shape and all that. So, you know, my attitude when I tried to pitch this to Marty and John Hinch 
And it wasn't, the, the work wasn't very good at all. And I don't know what I was thinking about, but it was just kind of an idea and it was kind of not very well prepared. But I was just trying to say that there's nothing more timeless. There's nothing more timeless than a tree, right? So yeah. if, if, you, if you integrate kind of more than organic field, rather than these kind of, you know, manicured lawns and planters, I, I just think that, I think more being in the earth and you, you see, I just, I just think that that's a trend that you see in the world. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things, the goals that I had for doing discovery land was to make it, um, to make it timeless or you could even say time less, time less, you know, more, it doesn't date itself, but what I did do, um, and this is, um, um, now that I'm thinking about this, I didn't bring this up that I was thinking about before. So it isn't necessarily the, the timeless aspect of it. wasn't necessarily the fact that we were using warm metals like mm -hmm. copper and brass and bronze and all that. And it wasn't necessarily just kind of steampunky kind of things. And it really wasn't steampunk in a sense, but it was a, it was a collection of architecture, just like it was a collection of the futures. Right. And um, the architecture really represented the theme of the attraction. So when you when you saw Visionarium with the Time Machine show, you know, it was much more of a kind of a kind of a Griffith Park Observatory laboratory kind of deco thing. And then Orbitron was kind of this Jules Verne Gizmo thing. And then Space Mountain was definitely more of a kind of a Jules Verne thing. But in order to kick it out of being specific to those kind of eras, I aligned everything with neon. Huh, yeah. Right, almost like laser, you know, on the Orbitron on those globes that had this neon stuff. And then on the, on the Visionarium, we had those crackle tubes, you know, like crackling, you know, it's kind of like Tesla coils or, or um, oh, um, oh, is that right? Uh, Tesla coil? Um, anyway. Like a Vandergraaff generator or something. The whole, yeah, well, the whole land was meant to be, um, powered by energy and you know the original premise of the entrance of discovery lands we had fire in the water and we had bubbles in the water and of course you know our special effects guys couldn't keep that stuff running hmm. eisner gave me crap for that for years i mean it's <laughs> but um but but i wanted that i wanted that electric energy you know when you look at the late 19th century explorers and I mean, there were eras of things like during that Jules Verne time, there were, there were two things that were going on, exploration throughout the planet. People were going to these exotic places. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Jules Verne was doing 20,000 leagues on the sea. And the other thing was this magic, this magic of taking, you know, a, a cable and plugging it into a wall and suddenly machines, things turn, and mm -hmm. go. Electricity was a big deal, you know. I mean, think about this. Well, I can spin out of control on this too, but um, you know, it wasn't until the 1870s that we learned how to turn lights on. You know, yeah. we, you know, the human species lived by the sun coming up and went to bed and slept, and the sun went down, mm -hmm. and that went on for millions of years, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. Then you get a light bulb. Now we're sitting here. You know, I mean, I mean yeah. somebody comes to this, you can, you get, there's going to be this magic power that will run machines and do stuff and make the darkness bright. 
Like, what? Come on. What is that? Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Don't look. laughs> yeah. It's And it hasn't been that long. I mean, when you look at, gosh, I mean, stuff like uh, the Carousel of Progress, when that opened, uh, it was, all that stuff was living memory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's right. just wild to think about. And that's what, how, how great that, that attraction was. It's like, you know, it's like different eras and, and, yeah. and every era thought it was the same, was the best. And that's one of the reasons why Discoveryland, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the partial themes that I thought Discoveryland worked in is, is we did, you know, it, it is, is a, my initial analysis of the whole thing was all the lands and all the parks and all the Disney parks, all the castle parks, all the fantasy lands, a collection, it's a collection of German stories and French stories and, you know, adventure land is exotic ports from the Caribbean to Africa to, you know, so like, why is, you know, to answer your question in another way, you know, why is Tomorrowland one future just then? So everybody's had a vision of the future. In that particular case, we had an H.G. Wells, a Jules Verne, a George Lucas, even to an extent, if you want to push it farther, there was even a Michael Jackson version of the future. Mm-hmm. But you had a George Lucas future. And, you know, it's like everybody dreams of the future. You know, they, they all they all do. And so, you know, they're representative through through technology and architecture. And that's what you want to put together. And so Epcot was saddled with that. You know, I mean, World's Fairs are great entities, but they're never permanent and right. being the permanent thing. You know, but it, I mean, Epcot, I think, did work. I, I just wish that I wish that they had built we baked in more opportunities for change and updating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was so tied to that 10 year participant contract, someone willing every 10 years to pony up however much money was needed to refresh every 10 years. And if you couldn't find anybody to do it, you were sunk. Uh, I mean, I know Epcot worked because it certainly worked on me. And I, you know, I've always been a big advocate for the fact that, you know, it's science fantasy is fine is great, but science fact also has a place in yeah, like, theme I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, all right. Well, you know, before we go, we always give our guests a chance to, if there's anything they want to, uh, and any plug, you want to do anything you're working on that you can talk about, uh, or anything that you would just uh, like to like to get out there or say to people. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned to you, but I, I, I just, it's not official yet. So I really can't. I so can't not wait. yet. Well, when, when, when it's ready to go, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. But Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it it'll, it'll kind of, uh, I'm working on it. I worked on it a lot today and I'm finishing it up. It's getting really close. Um, I got Disney interested in it. Um, I don't know what they're doing, but they're interested in it. And it, uh, as I told you, it, it's a, it's taking all the things that I learned mm-hmm. about how to put things together. What, what I was telling you about, you know, what it takes to build a city and how you coordinate things, and you know, um, there's a particular process in a different, in a different, in a definite discipline of how you make things coordinate together. And it's a very, you know, I'm always amazed when I see projects, although government projects have a tendency to do this, but I'm always amazed when projects, you know, that you hear about, like start out at a certain, they have a certain budget, then they blow through the budget and now it's 10 times more money. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we could never do that. You know, you, you have to watch it, but it takes money to, 
to build projects and you have to get projects off on the right foot. And, you know, there is a process by which all projects get, for me, all projects, whether it's at Disney or away from Disney, the ones that are successful have the same kind of attributes. And that is dedicated people, good leadership, the right budget, realistic goals. When you do that, um, yeah, I mean, these things are difficult to do. But if you lose and miss a step, and I will, and of all the things that I see projects where they go wrong, is that people think, well, a project's kind of slow, they get started and they start building, and then, you know, things can eventually go wrong. My opinion, you can make a project go right or wrong on the first day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. First day. You know, I mean, if you're if you're marching with a group of people and one guy is, starts out with his right foot and you're supposed to start with your left foot, you never catch up. Mm-hmm. It's always you're always somebody's always out of sync, and it can never you know um, it, it always has to be. You know, I tell people, you know, when somebody calls me, I'm like, well, what have you done? You know, it's like you know, if, and no one ever says, well, we started with you know developing the storyline and we've written a script and. We now all know what we want to do and we have set goals and, you know, now we're going to you know, build the team and go forward. And you know, most of the time they go, oh, we don't really know what to do, but we hired an architect. And I'm like, I love architects. I love architecture, but that's not the first thing you need to do. You need to really understand what something is all about, what you're doing. And you eventually want to get a room full of people who understand all the same things that you understand. And when you start describing what our goal is, who our audience is, and what the story is, and all that, and you get the whole room's head moving up and down, then you're like you're on the right on the right track. You know, if somebody goes, "Well, we're going to build this skyscraper," and everyone starts drawing skyscrapers, <laughs> it's the wrong way. I yeah. mean, you know, eventually you do that. I mean, that may be step three or four out of a thousand, but you know, um, anyway, it's just it's it's that's that's really the key, and and I think. Um, you know, good planning and all that is really is really great. And so that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm using these principles to apply to just something that I really want to apply to. And so that's sometime, you know, I mean, hopefully, hopefully I'll get it resolved this year and get it out there. But um, right. Well, anyway. I look forward to it. Well, thank you so much for your time. You know, I, I love, you know, I always love talking to you, love hearing your stories and just could hear you talk about these things forever. So uh, thanks for being so generous. <laughs> <laughs> oh my pleasure my pleasure yeah Ugh. thank you guys you guys you guys are always a a good a good audience Well, that wraps up the second part of the conversation with Tim Wenny Michael what a trip through the history of the Walt Disney Company really so true and the thing about talking to tim is it's like it's kind of like the wikipedia wormhole like you get a whole lot of information and there are about five different things you want to click in that paragraph (laughs) it's like well i want to find out about that but you can only click on one but then uh we need to find a way to like open 10 new tabs with tim that's right like oh we'll come back to that later we'll come back to that later because we uh just uh, so many little alleyways, nooks, and crannies of info there, and you know we could we could probably talk to him a lot more. Oh, we absolutely could. And if you are on our Patreon, you know that you have heard Tim talk a lot more. 
But we have extended cuts of these for our Patreon members. You get that exclusive content, uh, which we cut down a little bit for our uh, normal listeners. And then, uh, but for our normal listeners, there's going to be some more Tim coming up a little bit. You'll hear some more of that interview a little later. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to ask so many more questions anyway. So I know a lot of good stuff. Very exciting. And like you said, yeah, Tim, Tim, Tim has some relevant comments to things we're going to discuss in episodes ahead. That's right. Well, if you want to join up uh, to that Patreon, get that exclusive content. It is at patreon.com slash progress city USA. We'd like to thank all our patrons as always uh, for their support. Absolutely. We, uh, we're really appreciative of, uh, you know, the help they give us in keeping things going. That's right. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Twitter is at progresscityusa. That's Michael. And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Uh, Michael, what is up next for us? Well, in our next episode, we are going to take, let's just say, a, um, a deeper view of things, a wider view of things. Um, we're talking about Epcot a lot this year, of course, and as Tim indicated, you know, all these Epcot pavilions had very, I guess you could say, storied consultants, very uh, prominent people who were brought in to consult on these things. But that was definitely not Disney's first brush with greatness, with genius. All throughout the studio's history, there have been these brushes with outside genius. And so that is what we're going to talk about next time. You know, all these people have come through the doors of the studios over the years. From the early days on up through Epcot, a lot of people to talk about. Yes, indeed. The mind races. It's going to be exciting. So stay tuned for that one. It'll be in your feed in a couple of weeks. Until then, from all of us to all of you, we wish you well, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>